Let's turn now to Philippians chapter 3, and we'll read through this chapter. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord, for to me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on, that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. In connection with our scripture reading, let's turn our book of forms and prayers to Lord's Day 22, the Heidelberg Catechism, beginning at uh, towards the bottom of the page, Lord's Day 22. How does the resurrection of the body comfort you? Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ, its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. How does the article concerning life everlasting comfort you? Even as I already now experience in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, so after this life I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, nor no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally.
congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we read through the book of Acts, uh, we see that the resurrection was a great theme of New Testament preaching. And of course, central to that theme uh, was the resurrection of Christ, because the gospel is the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came according to the scripture, who lived a perfect life, who was crucified, who truly died, and was raised from the dead, according to the scriptures. But it's also the fact that Christ is preached uh, as Savior, and as Savior he is a representative man who also possessed a, a true human body and soul, which he yet possesses to this very day. True God and true man united in one person. And his resurrection is described as the first fruits of those who sleep. Meaning that uh, the entire harvest of those who are saved by the Lord Jesus Christ will follow him in being raised from the dead. Then that means that our whole view of salvation and our, our outlook on life our thoughts about our destiny, if they're shaped by the Scripture, uh, they will not be limited to notions of the salvation of our souls. They will not be limited to vague ideas of our spirits going to heaven when we die. Rather, they will reflect the biblical emphasis, the biblical teaching that's expressed even as Paul speaks of his own aspiration in uh, verse 11 of Philippians chapter 3, as he speaks as of the, the goal of his ongoing pursuit in this way, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And this is really the climax of the aspiration that he describes in the previous verses, to know Christ, to be found in him, to know the power of his resurrection, to be conformed to his death, that he may attain to the resurrection of the dead as an ultimate goal. Christ will raise our bodies to eternal life. That's the theme uh, for uh, this evening's sermon. And we're going to look at what really is involved in that simple statement, that Christ will raise our bodies to eternal life. And we're going to begin by considering the fact that our lowly bodies will be transformed at the resurrection. You know, the catechism doesn't spell this out, but I trust uh, we understand, even in terms of the sequence of articles in the Apostles' Creed, that the resurrection of the dead uh, pertains to that great event that will take place when the Lord Jesus himself returns in judgment to raise the living and the dead. And so this resurrection of the body uh, will not take place until the Lord Jesus Christ returns again in glory. And at that point, our lowly bodies will be transformed to be conformed to his glorious body. Verse 21 uh, speaks of, of this, where it says of Christ that he will transform our lowly body. An older rendering uh, says our vile bodies, and that could be very misleading and quite contrary to what we want to 
give attention to also tonight in terms of the goodness of the body as created by God. Rather, the idea is that uh, our bodies are lowly, and uh, this verse even could be rendered the bodies of our of our humiliation. It even pertur- uh, pertains to our present state in this life. But we need a proper Christian doctrine of the body, and perhaps now like never before, as basic understandings of the significance of the body is lost uh, to much of our world. On the one hand, you might say we have a kind of worship of the body. Uh, Paul spoke of those whose gods, uh, or whose god is their belly. And that's a, that's a way of expressing the fact that people live uh, for their appetites. They live for their desires. And it's described in terms of obsession with bodily uh, desires and appetites. On the one hand, uh, the body is worshipped. People live to beautify the body or to satisfy its cravings, to gratify its desires and appetites. But on the other hand, and right along with this in our culture, we have a degradation of the body. In fact, even in this same verse, in 19, which describes those whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, it also says whose glory is in their shame. In other words, they boast in things that they ought to be ashamed of. Like Pride Month, in which the world is expected to get on the bandwagon and almost every institution flies the colors of gay pride or LGBTQ pride as if this is something to celebrate. Shameful behavior, shameful activities that provoke God's wrath. For such things, the wrath of God comes upon the children of disobedience. But our world glories in its shame and it celebrates what involves the degradation of the bodies that God has made for holy purpose. The body is degraded. Bodies are deliberately deformed. Bodies are carved up to remove unwanted parts according to people's own ideas of beauty, or even more basically, their their identity as male or female. Bodies are despised. They're misused in the pursuit of desires that destroy health, that destroy appearance. Bodies are so often just carelessly discarded when they no longer uh, serve selfish purposes, when bodies become aged or when they become racked by pain or diseased, those bodies are treated as something to simply be snuffed out and brought to an end. Now is the time, like never before, to cherish, to understand and to share a Christian, a true view of the body. And to start with, we, we have to appreciate the significance of the fact that God formed our bodies. That the body is God's handiwork, even in a special way, in which humanity is distinguished from other creatures. God formed 
Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. The picture is that of God very directly and personally shaping the body of the first man. Similar language is used with respect to the first woman. God built a woman from the dust of Adam's body, from a rib. God constructed this helper most suitable for Adam. And together they bear the image of God. Together they share his likeness as those who have been specially made by God. And that language of God's direct creative work in the formation of the body is not limited to to the first parents. The psalmist uses, uses very intimate language of God's handiwork, God's marvelous work in, in forming His inward parts. When He was skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That's a biblical way of referring to the hidden depths of the womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. Marvelous are your works. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. The psalmist worships a God who is omniscient, everywhere present, who knows him intimately in terms of his thoughts, afar off, his words, his every action, who knows him deeply as his creator, who formed him, and who formed him with the body as well as a soul. We're made to glorify God in the body. Paul actually makes reference to that in the first chapter, expressing his confidence that he would glorify God in the body, whether in life or in death. We're made to glorify God in our bodies as instruments of knowledge and of righteousness and holiness. And that means that the image of God ought not to be limited or reduced to some invisible thing, as if the image of God only pertains to the spirit of man, to the soul of man. The Lord Jesus Christ told Philip, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Well, he's not talking about some mystical perception of the internal essence of Jesus. He's speaking of the one before him in body and soul with facial expressions, with, with a distinctive voice in which the image of God shone out in perfection. God made the body, male and female, to be respected, to be protected, to be cherished. And that's true of bodies and faces, of all different appearances and shapes and sizes. It pertains to all the racial differences that exist in this world because God has made of one blood all people who dwell on the face of the earth. They share the same likeness as body and soul beings created in God's image. That's why we must never say, you young people must never say, I hate my body, I hate my face, I hate my nose. Now if our bodies suffer from our neglect, 
or our mistreatment, we ought to work hard to do better by grace. But to hate our bodies is insulting to our Maker. To hate our bodies is to be ungrateful to the God who gave us our bodies with their distinctive characteristics and features. It's interesting that when uh, the Lord commissioned Moses uh, to uh, deliver his people from Egyptian uh, bondage, and Moses protested again and again, and eventually uh, he said, Lord, I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. That the Lord didn't immediately say, well, I'll help you. Uh, you can do it. No, rather his response was, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, indeed, that takes into account the reality of the fall. But the Lord is acknowledging the reality that all these differences, even among people in terms of handicaps, are his doing. As if to say, Moses, if you're slow of speech, well, how did you become slow of speech? Isn't it my doing? And I've commissioned you. If I've commissioned you, you should trust me. I know what I'm doing. You can rely upon me. I'll give you what you need. God is sovereign. God is good in his formation of the body. God formed our bodies in his image. That's first. That's the starting point for an understanding of the body. And yes, we have to also include recognizing the fact that our bodies are dragged down with us by the fall. And that means that without redemption, our bodies with our souls face God's judgment and eternal curse. And our bodies are affected by the fall in very many ways. And there are bodies that, that suffer deformities even from birth and severe handicaps which, which would not exist in the world as God created it had it not been for the reality of sin and the curse against sin. And yes, there are even these strange and rare instances where there is a kind of sexual ambiguity from birth, where the physical distinctions between male and female are, are not immediately obvious and clear. Yes, there are such exceptions in this fallen world. There are diseases of various kinds that affect, affect us often from early years. And then there are the disordered passions, the disorder of our cravings and impulses, so that we even are inclined to crave and to desire not only what is sinful according to God's commandments, but what is unnatural, that is contrary to the purpose for which God gave us our bodies. And our bodies become defiled. They can be degraded and defiled by sins that are committed against us, by others, with devastating consequences. They can become defiled by ourselves. And that's especially true with respect to sexual sins. There's a, there's a, a uniqueness that characterizes sexual sins as, as taught in scripture of thinking particularly of Rome, of, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
where it says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now, man is a composite of body and soul. So man is defined in terms of body and soul, and yet there is a distinction of body and soul in the sense that man can sin against his body. By the abuse and misuse of his body, he can commit a particular kind of sin against himself. The Bible is very uh, fulsome. It is quite explicit and sometimes rather detailed in its description of how such sins are committed. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, we read that if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die, the man that lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall put away the evil from Israel. In chapter five, uh, verse 5 of this cha same chapter, it says, A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, styles change with culture, and we don't want to impose the styles of a certain age in our application of this passage. We're talking about the deliberate intent to dress like a man or dress like a woman. Something that is rather common in our day. Something that we're all supposed to celebrate. We're to send our children to the library so that drag queens can read storybooks to them. So that it can be normalized and celebrated and viewed as cool and interesting. We have such passages in the book of Exodus or in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 20, uh, verse uh, 13, where we read, If a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. It doesn't really matter what they felt. It doesn't really matter their emotional state. Doesn't really matter how they identify or how they feel. There's an objective, uh, standard that the Lord proclaims here by which He defines sin. Later on in this same chapter in verse 15 and, and 16, we read, if a woman approaches any animal and mates with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. And then it goes on. It talks about incestuous uh, relationships. Verse 15, if a man mates with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. I dare say that such verses are probably rarely uh, read today in the public worship of God's people, but they ought to be read now and then. The sad reality is that if such verses are not read in public, there are many professing Christians that will never hear them. They will never know what the Bible says about such things. They will never come to understand that according to God's Word, such behaviors of sexual immorality, of all these various kinds, and many more are spelled out in detail. They involve a degradation of the body. They involve treating what God has made to be used with honor in a way that degrades it with terrible consequences. The basis for such teaching is that the body is good. 
as God made it. And the body is God's. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, Paul says. And the Lord for the body. You see that these passages that may be shocking to many, that involve judgment, God's verdict against uh, behaviors that are being normalized increasingly in our day. These passages are based on the fact that God made us. God made our bodies for good purposes. Not to be degraded. Not to be debased and harmed and destroyed by human passions. Our bodies were formed by God. Our bodies are dragged down with us by the fall. But sin does not have the last word over our bodies. You may observe creation, fall, redemption. Because these are the great themes that our world needs to hear about in order to understand themselves in God's world. The goodness of the body as God's creation is not destroyed by the fall. And the effects of sin on our bodies do not determine our destiny and the destiny of the body. In other words, Satan loses. Satan's aim was to destroy, to destroy God's world. He loses. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Satan's aim is to destroy the bodies that are made in God's image. And he loses because Christ purchases bodies to glorify him. And though those bodies may molder in the grave for a time, they will be raised in glory. And they'll be transformed after the image of Jesus Christ. And Christ loves us. Body and soul. He's united to us. Body and soul. He redeemed both by His blood. And He will raise our bodies with all the ravages of sin removed. And we'll transform them. Our lowly bodies transform. But we can't appreciate that without a Christian, a true view of the body. Secondly, when it comes to the resurrection of the body, we must understand that in that resurrection, the image of Christ is perfected. Again, to repeat what was said, per perfect salvation is more than, than going to heaven. And this is not to take anything away from our comfort in dying. In this very book, in the first chapter, uh, Paul speaks of his desire to uh, depart and uh, to be with Christ, uh, which is far better uh, to be absent from the body, well, that's not the ultimate destiny, but to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in spirit. This is called the intermediate state. This has to do with uh, the condition, the state of existence of, of, uh, of the saints uh, between the time of their death and the resurrection of the body. It also pertains to the state of the wicked, who also uh, continue in a conscious state in uh, the spirits uh, which are imprisoned, awaiting the day of judgment and the uh, reunion with their bodies. But the Scripture really focuses on Christians. 
Although we must say it doesn't really say a whole lot about this intermediate state. We know that it's better than our present condition. We know that it is a happy condition in the presence of Christ. We know that in the letter to the Hebrews, uh, the departed saints are described as the spirits of just men made perfect. Their spirits are sanctified. But yet in this, this state, the redeemed are yet imperfect, incomplete. The Bible doesn't say a whole lot about it. The Bible certainly doesn't uh, encourage uh, the kind of foolish things that are often said at funerals, where people are described uh, as engaged in activities that imply and really require uh, existence in the body, whether it's going fishing or knitting sweaters or grandma enjoying her favorite kind of cooking in heaven. And we should be aware of that kind of silliness and try to avoid it because it's not scriptural. And whatever sentimentality it might arouse and people find comforting, well, we don't want to make up comforts that are contrary to the teaching of God's word. Our departed loved ones are in a bodiless state. They await the resurrection of the body. Yes, they are uh, with Christ in spirit but their bodies remain in the grave until the great day of resurrection. In the Revelation chapter 6, we're given an insight into the imperfection of that condition, where John, when the fifth seal was opened, saw the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then a white robe was given each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Full of figurative language, right? They're under an altar. What does that mean? White robes are given to these spirits. What does that mean? It's figurative language. They already possess a victory. But they're like in a period of waiting and expectation and imperfection. Because more Christians have to be killed yet for the glory of Christ before he returns. And what that means, brothers and sisters, is that the best is yet to come also for the saints in heaven. Our redemption, as our catechism says, is not only that our souls will be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul. You see, that involves the idea of separation. Yes, it's an unnatural state. God created man body and soul. And the severance of body and soul is not treated as some kind of liberation and some ultimate deliverance from the body. As if the body were bad and were good to be rid of it. No. There's a separation of body and soul. The body and soul will be reunited on the day of resurrection. The redemption of the purchased possession, to use the language of Ephesians chapter 3, the redemption of the purchased possession is the redemption of our body. That's the language of Romans 8. And then the full significance, even of our adoption as children of God, will be revealed according to Romans 
chapter 8. The creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption that is the, the complete manifestation of the adoption. Well, what's that? The next phrase, the redemption of our body. We're saved in this hope, the hope of the glorious, blessed resurrection that is yet to come, when our bodies will be conformed to the perfect image of Christ, as His likeness will be reflected in our resurrected and renewed bodies with their own unique individuality, Likeness to Christ does not mean cloning. We will retain our individuality. But the image of Christ will be reflected in our glorified bodies. And only then will the goal of our redemption be attained. Again, consider Paul's words there in verse 11 of our, our reading. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And we might wonder uh, what that means because... After all, couldn't it be said that everyone is going to attain to the resurrection of the dead, whether they like it or not? All who sleep in the dust will be raised, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. That's the book of Daniel. The hour is coming, uh, Jesus said, when all those who are in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of Man and they'll come forth. Again, some to the resurrection of life and some to the resurrection of condemnation. And so the bodies of the wicked also will be raised and reunited with their souls so that they might suffer the judgment of God in those bodies that have sinned with their souls. But Paul is not speaking of them. Paul here is referring to uh, the, the blessed hope, the blessed resurrection with, with all that that entails. He's referring to the goal of Christians. Consider his situation. Here he is in prison. He's currently suffering in the body. He's suffering from depredation, cold, discomfort, facing execution. His situation is far from perfect. And he's currently aware of the imperfection of his sanctification. He doesn't yet fully grasp the magnitude of what it means to be in Christ. He yet longs to know Him, to know more of Him, to know more of the power of His resurrection at work in His life. He wants to be conformed to His death, even through hardship and suffering, sanctified through it after the pattern of a suffering Savior. He presses on. He doesn't believe that He has attained to the goal. He is very much aware of the imperfection of his situation. But the goal is clear. And really that goal is the same as that which uh, is described in answer 58. After this life, I will have perfect blessedness, such as no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart has ever imagined, a blessedness in which to praise God eternally. And this should affect all of our aims and all of our hopes now. In verses 14 and 15, uh, as Paul speaks of his own 
ongoing endeavors uh, towards the goal for which he was called in Christ Jesus. He says, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Let us pursue that high and holy Christian calling to glorify God, body and soul, to know more of Christ, to abide in Him, to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to abide in Him that when He appears we may have confidence and not be ashamed at His coming, as John says. Because when He comes, we'll see Him as He is and we'll be like Him. And the image of God will be perfected in body and soul. And at that time, the glorious power of Christ will be revealed finally. You know that the resurrection uh, of the body has always provoked ridicule. That's not something unique to this modern age, right? We're scientific people nowadays, and back then in Bible times, yeah, people believed in the resurrection because they were just naive, and they lived in this mythical world, and they would believe anything they heard. That's not what you find out when you read the New Testament. When the apostles preached the resurrection, a characteristic response of some or many was they mocked. There's a whole religious class in Israel, uh, the Sadducees, who denied the resurrection of the body, who denied angels and spirits. They were like modern-day liberals, a significant class of religious people. And I have to say this. I know you've all heard me say it before, but if you want to remember who they are, they're the Sadducees because they don't believe in the resurrection of the body. And that's why they're sad, you see. The resurrection has always provoked ridicule. And there certainly are questions that we can't answer in a scientific way about how the the dust or the ashes of people that have perished centuries ago and how that dust and ashes and nutrients have provided uh, fertilizer for uh, growth, and vegetation, which in turn has been eaten by cows, and on and on and on it goes. And, you know, people can raise objections to uh, make us look really silly, so they think. But you know what our answer is? Our answer is not recreation. Our answer is not God's going to create a brand new body. No, our answer is resurrection. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. The imagery of Scripture is that of sowing and then reaping. I know that though worms destroy my flesh, yet in my flesh I shall see God. My eyes shall behold Him, not another. We believe in the resurrection of the body. And we dismiss, we just sweep aside all these objections and all these arguments with a very simple answer. And that is that our bodies will be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. It is by His almighty power, the power of one who spoke this vast universe into existence with all its complexity and all its wonders. 
by the power of Christ, our bodies will be raised. And so instead of doubting him, we may join the Apostle Paul and the New Testament saints there in uh, verse 20, who know that their citizenship is in heaven, uh, from which we also eagerly wait the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can live in this life with that expectation. We can keep that goal before us. And yeah, here's a caution against living for this world, isn't it? Here's a caution against being like those enemies of the cross who live for their own desires. But here's also comfort in the sufferings of this life. Sufferings of this life with its irreversible losses. Sometimes the loss of limbs or deformities from birth. Sometimes the the loss of health. Never to be recovered, never to be restored. With a loss sometimes beginning even in early years. Or the loss of activity, the loss of mobility, the loss of clear thinking and memory, the loss of eyesight, the loss of God-given body parts that have been foolishly and sinfully squandered by people who thought that they could transition that they could transition and change their gender from male to female or female to male, many of whom have discovered the fact that they couldn't do it, that it really didn't work, that they're fighting against reality, didn't solve their problems. They still feel alienated. They perhaps feel worse than ever. You know that the suicide rate among those who have transitioned after Seven years from seven to ten years is astronomical. And we can expect that this, this misery, this unhappiness, this despair, and who knows what other consequences will come from it, are going to increase because children and young people are encouraged to take irreversible measures to change their bodies with hormone treatments or with surgery. It's going to leave a world of misery in its wake, which people desperately need the gospel so that people can find their identity in creation, the reality of the fall that explains a whole lot, and the redemption of a loving Savior who gave his blessed body his pure and holy body that was only and always used as an instrument of righteousness and goodness. And he gave his body to be degraded, to hang naked on a cross, to be lacerated with a whip and punctured with nails and thorns, to suffer God's judgment against our sin of degrading our bodies He did so that we might escape the condemnation that we deserve and that we might be restored, ultimately resurrected with all the ravages of sin forever removed. You know, it's a wonderful thing that there are those who have discovered their sin, who have repented of their foolishness and the harm they've done to themselves and who have even accepted the fact that what they've done is really quite irreversible in this life. They can't change it. But they can live with it because their life and their identity and their happiness is no longer bound up with their sexuality 
with their own desires and pursuits, but it's found in Christ. And they can await the complete redemption that will take place when the Lord Jesus returns. And their lowly bodies will be transformed after his image and glorified along with the rest of all those who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh yes, there is the certain hope of wholeness, wholeness, complete wholeness, whatever our circumstances and situation might be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.